listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and today we're excited to bring you an episode with Dr. Jal Mehta. Dr. Mehta grew up in Baltimore and is the son of a school administrator and a college professor. Now as an assistant professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, Mehta is a leading advocate for deeper learning. He appreciated that his mentor, Richard Elmore, was always a knowledgeable person in the room because he spent time in schools every week. That's right. And Dr. Mehta followed suit and visited the best high schools in the country, which led him to co-author a new book, In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. He recently spoke with Tom about his observations, and today we get to share those with you. Let's listen in. So, Mehta, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hey, it's a, a treat to have you on. You, um, I heard you grew up in Baltimore. Is that right? I did. And did you actually go to school where your mom was the uh, was was in charge? Uh, she was uh, second in charge. She was the uh, associate head of school. Uh, was a private uh, progressive school in Baltimore. Uh, I was particularly fortunate that she was not only the associate head of school, but uh, when I was four and I was getting admitted to the school, she was also the admissions director. Uh, which I'm told was fortunate because the admissions um, test required you to play memory or something with some, you know, cartoon characters from Disney or things like that. And uh, we didn't watch this movie, so I didn't know those characters. So I failed that test. So it was fortunate (laughs) that my mom was the uh, admissions director, though that also suggests that perhaps she should have revisited some of her procedures. But um, yes. Did you ever get in trouble uh, that's a good question. Um, were, were, you a, were you a compliance student? I mean, you know, mostly I was as I am now, you know, a student who, you know, did pretty well in school, but, right. you know, questioned why the school was, you know, doing this or that. Uh, I can remember, you know, as the editor of the school newspaper. And so in that role, I would write editorials and, you know, my editorials would say, you know, why does the administration do this? Or why does the administration do that? And my mom said to me one night over dinner, you know, Jal, I I am the administration. If you have a problem, like, why can't we just talk about it over dinner? Uh, So it was sort of particularly great in that uh, I went to school, but then, you know, I had sort of a second education over dinner, sort of discussing what had happened in school and why. So uh, kind of the education conversations I'm having now, I've, I've been having my whole life. Right. No, it's kind of meta because your dad was also uh, a university professor, right? My dad uh, was a theater professor and a director. Um, so through that, I got to, um, you know, I learned something about the uh, the arts. Um, a lot of conversations in my household also about, you know, belonging to a public university. Uh, my dad taught at UMBC, which... Uh, the president there for a long time and still is Freeman Herbowski, who uh, has done a lot of good things for the university, raised its profile in a number of ways. But um, at the same time, my dad was always wondering, you know, why so much money going to STEM and why not more money going to the arts? And so sort of those conversations about, you know, should the funding of a university be, you know, connected directly to the sort of economic priorities of its graduates, or is there a broader mission to a university? We kind of ha- were having those discussions from the beginning. Uh, um, 
We're, we're talking today because you uh, re recently released a great book called In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. You and I visit a lot of high schools, and they're really weird places, aren't they? Uh, they are uh, weird, but also uh, great places. I mean, you know, compared to my colleagues, some of my colleagues who, you know, either sit in their office and, you know, run numbers or dig through the archives and read documents, uh, the chance to go to schools and talk with students and teachers and parents and administrators, you know, it really is the, the best way to learn. Uh, when I came here to the ed school, um, my uh, mentor was a man named Richard Elmore, who some of your uh, listeners right. may know. And, uh, you know, I, we were just part of a lot of conversations with policy people and other folks and uh, Richard always seemed to be the most knowledgeable person in the room. And uh, I eventually wondered why that was. And I realized it was because every week he was, you know, in an actual school and other people were going off of, you know, what they'd seen or experienced 20 or 30 years ago. And it was just sort of totally different uh, a ball game. So um, I really wanted to have a chance to spend a lot of time in schools. And it was it was really gratifying. Uh, the, the best part really was uh, often meeting with the students. Um, you know, frequently we would get a lunch period to, you've probably done this, where, you know, you just sort of like brown bag your lunch and you sit around a table and you talk with the students without the faculty present about the school. And students are such sort of penetrating anthropological observers of their environments. Uh, and so uh, it was just, uh, it was really great. We, we really enjoyed uh, a lot of the research. We spend time in schools every week all over the country, when we can, all over the world. I said weird places because uh, we've inherited hundreds of years of practices and, that have divided schools up into things called disciplines, and we've organized around things called courses and committees that met 120 years ago still have a lot to do with how the place is constructed and what what buildings look like today and how kids move through the day so they they are they're places that can be wonderfully alive with learning but they have hundreds of years of tradition that are also really hard to move away from right i think that's right it was wonderful just to like spend the time with the kids but it was not wonderful to uh to be part of the institutions. And ironically, we thought that in a lot of cases, the faculty were struggling against some of those things that you just mentioned, as well as the as yeah. the students. So, you know, we make a big point in the book to, to say that so-called sort of peripheral spaces in schools, electives, extracurriculars, clubs, uh, are just sort of much more aligned with what we know about powerful learning in that, you know, there are they take place. There's a clear purpose to what uh, students are doing. There's an arc of learning. There's uh, feedback, which comes sort of towards the end of producing something. Uh, and then in comparison, a lot of what happens in kind of normal disciplinary classes felt very uh, inauthentic, not that relevant to anything that anyone was that interested in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do think that history that you described what Tyke and Cuban call the, the grammar of schooling uh, 
was was very present in our observations and the schools that we visited you know they were they were recommended schools so schools that somebody had suggested as places that were either doing you know what what might be called today 21st century skills or particularly rigorous forms of traditional learning and uh, a lot of what we saw was was pretty disappointing when measured against criteria like were students doing higher order thinking tasks were students engaged and passionate in the work that they were doing uh, even though these schools were highly recommended, um, a, a lot of the time students were doing work that was low level uh, and not that engaging. And so I think one thing I would want your listeners to know is, um, you know, don't look at the labels of schools. Uh, so school might be blended or competency based or um, uh, project based or you know, might have a portfolio assessment or a number of things, structures, which are, are good, but like what, what actually happens within those structures really matters a lot. And the sort of pull of history, uh, is really strong. Let's, um, help our listeners by making this tangible. Um, Joel, I'd like you to try to create a, um, a, an image of what, deeper learning, what powerful learning might look like at, at uh, like three different levels. Let's start with um, primary grades, sort of thinking K3. What, what's your sense of what deeper learning looks like there? So um, um, I think the sort of, basically I think that the sort of the principles are the same, but the way that they meet, kids at different developmental stages are, are a little different. Um, but, you know, to, um, to give an example, so the principles are that students should have some agency and choice, which we actually do a lot better with, I think, with uh, really small children, preschool, kindergarten, Reggio Emilia, Montessori, like, you know, there, there are some modes which give kids a lot of choice and agency. Um, and then, you know, relevance, and then sort of some form of feedback that would allow you to get better uh, at what you were doing. So there are as many ways to do that as there are, you know, subjects in schools, you know, like you could, you know, one example might be uh, like a a poetry salon, you know, we saw a school where uh, students were uh, writing their own poems they got visited by a sort of local poet. They got some feedback on their poems and then they like presented their poems to each other in the form of a like poetry salon. So one of the sort of principles we talk about in the book is that um, this idea from Dave Perkins that um, uh, powerful learning is often uh, um, the, the, the whole game at the junior level and uh, Dave's point is that, um, you know, you don't teach kids to play baseball by having a year of running and a year of catching and a year of pitching and a year of batting and tell them that they'll actually get to play a game in graduate school sometime. You know, like the, you got little seven-year-olds, you know, running around a field trying to do the whole game. And what that does is it gives the student some sense, the learner some sense of like, what is this enterprise I'm engaged in? Why is it like, why do people want to do this? Where am I going with this? And then within that, you work on the parts. So in the in the poetry example, uh, you see that right. Like you're you're you join the world of people who are known as poets, and um, 
with that come certain conventions and certain rules, which you're learning and you're applying at whatever level uh, you can do it. And you're getting feedback from your classmates and eventually you're presenting it. And so, you know, you could do the same thing at an Iowa writer's workshop. It just would be a lot more sophisticated, but the sort of like core ideas would be the same. What might we add at the, in the middle grades? If we visited a middle school, what kind of powerful learning would you hope to see? Uh, my favorite middle school example was at a school, and you may have seen this one, uh, where um, a really wise um, leader told me uh, something along the lines of, if you ask kids for their interests, you'll get, you know, basketball and video games. But if you ask them about their questions, you'll be really, it'll be really interesting to see sort of what range of questions they had. So at one school, they uh, asked kids to brainstorm you know, all the sort of like big questions they had about the world and the universe. And then they put them up on a sheet of paper and then they sticker voted to sort of see which one was the most popular. And uh, the most popular question among the adolescents at this school was, how is the world going to end? Uh, So, you know, a little uh, morbid, but perhaps, you know, fitting the like 12 to 13 to 14 year old, you know, brain. And then they split, the, they split the, the kids up into teams and they research different scenarios, climate change, infectious disease, nuclear war. And then there was, a, there was a presentation day where they each shared their scenarios and the sort of likelihood of those scenarios happening. So that's a good example because you start with a question that's really authentic uh, to kids it leads in a lot of different sort of interesting interconnected directions. And then through that, you can, you know, you can build in real skills. So like to do those things, like the climate change example, you know, you have to learn how to um, sort real sources from fake sources, uh, figure out how to weigh evidence. So you can, you can sort of build a lot of skills. You can do some stuff with sort of elementary statistics in terms of the likelihood. So essentially you're sort of threading the kind of core skills you want to be building anyway uh, through these uh, through these questions. All right, let's move on to high school. The subject of your book, and maybe what you could do here is um, just a couple vignettes from some of your favorite high schools. What, what you saw and why you thought it was powerful. Um, well, uh, core subjects. Um, you know, science was a really big arena where we felt like there was a big divide between sort of like the school version of science and the real version of science. So the school version of science is essentially to go through a set of procedures to demonstrate to yourself in a lab a principle that Newton or Darwin or somebody has already established to be true. Uh, And no real scientist would do that. There's there's just no point, right? Like you might replicate a reason experiment if you thought that there were reasons to, but you wouldn't spend time sort of demonstrating to yourself a principle that's already known. I mean, science is really about exploring the unknown, not sort of demonstrating to yourself the known. So at one school, they had, um, um, in 10th grade, they taught a course called Methods of Scientific Investigation. And uh, the purpose of that was basically to sort of learn how to do real science. Uh, And so the, the questions were not, you know, that spectacular, but they were chosen by the kids. So an example of a question might be something like, um, if you listen to music uh, on your headphones, will you be kind of more or less efficient at doing your homework? Right? So like, that's not a, 
like a world breaking question, but it's a real question. And you could imagine the answer being, you know, one or the other, or it depends on the circumstances or the nature of the music or the nature of the kid. You know, there's a lot of variability in that. And so within that, they taught the kids, you know, how to construct an experiment, a control group. They taught them, you know, how to use like uh, software, which allowed them to um, access other scientific articles. They taught them like how to write an introduction, how to write a results section. And, you know, it took them basically like a whole semester to write essentially one paper about a topic like that. But when you talk to the kids, and this was a STEM school, the kids in 11th and 12th grade went on to do things in the world and, you know, partnered with firms or they partnered with college labs to, you know, to do real scientific work. Um, but the kids really credited the first course, this like methods of scientific investigation course is the one that had really hooked them because it really sort of changed their notion of like what it was that scientists did. They like got to see all the sort of uncertainty that's inherent in the scientific uh, process. Um, so that's a good example from a, a disciplinary class. And I think like talking about disciplinary classes is really important because in a lot of schools, you're not going to have the flexibility to always be doing uh, project-based learning. Um, and so thinking about the ways in which you could do these things sort of within disciplinary classes, I think is really uh, important. And also, I think sometimes people just conflate like deeper learning and project-based learning. And uh, with, a, you know, just a little bit of thinking, you can see that that's flawed because, uh, you know, project-based learning can be deep or shallow. It really depends on the nature of the thinking that's going on, the nature of the project. You know, we, we went to a school where kids were, you know, sewing buttons onto um, puppets and, and there were circuits involved. And we asked them about the sort of un underlying electrical engineering and they like couldn't say anything about that. So like, that's not deep learning from my uh, perspective. So anyway, it's worth, it's worth talking about uh, in both the disciplines uh, and in a uh, project-based uh, setting. You talked about discipline-based courses. Should we even have discipline-based courses? Is that still the best way to organize uh, a place called high school? It's a really, really interesting question. Uh, I think I would mostly come down on the side of no at the high school level because kids don't wake up in the morning interested in disciplinary questions. They wake up in the morning interested in real questions, which cut across uh, disciplines. Um, there was a school that um, one of my students here at the Harvard Ed School, uh, um, you know, played a big role in organizing. And um, they made the principle of the school sort of every class should be like an elective class. So essentially, like, assume that someone would have to want to opt into this class. So instead of like English 9, there was, you know, um, power, love, and justice in literature, you know? And so, like, in that sense, I think that if we could move away from, like, English 9, History 9, History 10, Math 1, you know, Algebra 1, Algebra 2, etc., like, I think that that would be good. Um, I think the, the sort of complicated part for me, and Tom, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, is, um, y you know, I, I did an interdisciplinary undergraduate major, major in uh, what at the university I went to was called social studies, which is sort of like a mixture of social theory and history. 
And it really took on sort of like big questions about like how the modern world had come into being and how we should think about that. And I found that really interesting. And then uh, I went to graduate school and I got a PhD in sociology and I really learned how like one discipline worked. And now I teach again at an ed school, which is an interdisciplinary place, which has psychology, sociology, economics, et cetera. And uh, at the moment, I'm really glad that I've done all of those things, that it, it was useful, like spending some time, like actually in a discipline and then using that to sort of have a lens to interrogate some questions. So it's like nice to have a sort of purchase point. Um, and so if, if sort of all education all the way through were sort of non-disciplinarily based, I'm not convinced that that necessarily would be good. But I think that at the younger ages, you know, people are interested in real world things and those real world things cut across the things that we call disciplines. And so we would have more luck if we organized around the real world things and we fed through some of the disciplinary knowledge through it than if we organized around the disciplines and tried to make those disciplines interesting to people because there's just sort of limits to that, I think. What do you think? I think a better better mixture that you would be helpful if we could build a map of the things generally thought of as being useful to know and be able to do and had more flexibility to construct a sequence of interdisciplinary projects or maybe co-construct interdisciplinary projects with uh, a group of learners and supplement those with uh, both skill sprints and problem solving and and literacy, but also Socratic seminars where we have opportunities to go deep in uh, in the questions resident in a particular discipline that that uh, sort of a mixture would be more productive. But I, I appreciate the, the need for both. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I really like that idea. I think the challenge, Jal, is that we just haven't found a new organizing principle. We, we've for several hundred years, sort of reinforced by the Committee of Ten, organized our lives around these things called courses that are 180 days long. And it's not only the pedagogical construct, it's the architectural construct, and it's the communications construct. It's how we describe the experience that we had. And that construct really does inhibit uh, the interdisciplinary studies, but we haven't created either new ways to organize schools and, and schedule the human beings that interact there. And we haven't me- developed new measures of learning that help us describe the new capabilities that we have. So it, it does feel like we have an invention problem that we need to solve before we can move into a much more dynamic sequence of learning experiences that young people and, and teachers uh, interact in. Yeah. I, I I agree. I, I like both parts of what you said. If we could sort of draw kind of a big map and have students and faculty kind of co-construct together sort of what set of experiences um, would allow you. Because, I, I mean, you know, in in life, you mostly need sort of s- skills and uh, like abilities to do things. And you know, you need to know how to read and be able to do math up to a certain level. But beyond that, you know, if if I gave a sort of, you know, group of college educated adults a quiz on, you know, mitochondria and the French Revolution and a whole variety of topics that people studied in school, people would not do that well on that quiz. Right. Um, and so, um, 
the idea that like there's all these things that like we need people to sort of know and that they're going to remember them down the road uh, seems pretty false. It seems like we would do better to pare back that list to the really, really, really big picture essential things that we think that you need to know to function as an adult in the world. And then otherwise, you know, create a lot more flexibility. Uh, and the thing you want to hold constant on are the are, are the skills, people's ability to read, write, communicate, empathize, collaborate, etc. And there are lots of ways to achieve those things. Um, there's there's a lot there's a lot up for grabs r- right now in our sector, right? When we're asking a lot of these pretty fundamental questions about how to organize school and how to uh, measure learning and how to communicate that with other stakeholders. That's true. Makes it an interesting time to be doing this. Yeah, I think um, I think so. I think that there. I think if we sort of stepped back a little bit you know, no child left behind wound down, though some of the uh, mindsets from no child left behind persist, but as a policy, it wound down. And uh, Common Core was the next thing, though it took off more in some places than others. Um, And then there's big void in Washington. Nothing's happening there. Uh, So... I do feel like we're sort of in a kind of un, undefined space where the previous things are uh, gone or weakened and sort of what should replace them is not yet uh, defined. So I do find that sort of a sort of optimistic. It, it's, it's, I, I, I can imagine to some people it might feel a little disorienting, but to folks who want significant change, it seems like a good opportunity. There are hundreds of communities around uh, the country and probably thousands around the world that are uh, trying to build new pictures of uh, what graduates should know and be able to do. Some people call them a, a portrait of a graduate. Are, are you optimistic about those kinds of exercises? Uh, necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, so I think it's what's healthy about that, right, is that you bring together a bunch of different stakeholders and you ask them really fundamentally, like at the end of this process, like what do you want an 18 year old to know and be able to do? And when you do that, no one says, you know, they must understand like this kind of chemical reaction, uh, right? People say we need people who can think, who can empathize, who can solve the world's problems, who can write, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like if you, if you did a Google image search for portraits of a graduate, each community is defining that differently, but there's a lot of overlap in the sort of big picture, uh, skills that people are seeking. So that part seems healthy. It's like a way of stepping back from what we think we know about this enterprise and thinking about what we really want. The, my questions come like, well, what happens after that? So you, you define your portrait of a graduate and you say that, you know, you want to do the six C's or whatever, wherever you land. Like, are you really going to then realign your structures, rethink how you do teaching and learning, change the shape of the day, change the nature of the disciplines, et cetera, et cetera, in line with what you're, with what you're doing? So I think, it's a, I think it's a good step, but I'm interested to sort of hear from districts and some of the ones that you've profiled, like Albemarle and 
others have uh, have have really made a commitment to to following through. But I think that they did that because it's not just the sort of the process; it's the leadership of the of the district was really committed to rethinking a lot of things closer to the ground. Uh, what has your experience been with those uh, portrait of a graduate processes? Uh, that, as you said, they're necessary but not sufficient. That they're important to have a community conversation so that you voice what's happening in the world and and some of the implications and begin to translate those into a new set of learning goals. I, I think we've found that people that try to do the work without having that community conversation get fired. Yeah. I mean, I went and gave a version of this talk at a school and uh, the people from the art, music and CTE department came up to me after and they said, you're the first person to ever speak at this school and say that we were doing it right and other people had something to learn from us. Um, I, I really do think there is some truth to it. Um, no, I, what we usually do at this juncture is encourage people to read our last book, <laughs> Better Together, about working in networks. Um, the, so our thesis has been that we're trying to do really difficult work of, of trying to redefine what kids should know and be able to do, reconceptualize learning experiences as, as you've done around uh, deeper learning build new learning models, then construct new school models around those, the structure, system, schedules, and supports, and, and then build community around that. And those six tasks are e enormously difficult in and of themselves, and to do them simultaneously is uh, unbelievably difficult and complex and often expensive. And so we would argue that in some way, communities need to choose the way in which they'll work together with other people to build new new learning experiences and new new learning organizations because the, the work is really hard. Yeah. And I guess also just sort of human psychology being what it is, seems like, you know, change comes from people experiencing success in some small way and that feeding their desire for more change. So, I think in any such process, I would want to make sure there are lots of opportunities for people to try things in a small way, sort of like a bias towards action, but, you know, sort of moderate sized action. And it's hard to think about like how all the pieces will get aligned. And, uh, you know, we quote Sizer in the book as saying, like, if you want to change something, you need to change everything. And there is some truth to that, but it's also the case that, you know, for real people trying to make change, trying to find some way that they can, you know, have experiences on a smaller scale that would give them appetite for a larger scale is pretty important. Yeah. So I love, love, love that. People really need to to try to take that, uh, that bias towards action seriously. I want to give a shout out to Matt Candler and 4.0 Schools. I think they've, um, and now Hassan, Hassan, who's uh, who's leading that organization, I think he's helped the sector understand that you, you you don't have to change everything. That you can start an afternoon program that can turn into a summer program that can turn into a micro school. Mm -hmm. um, that we can we can use the principles of iterative development uh, to to learn on small scales. Uh, we love. Folks like Kettle Moraine that have used this principle to reinvent their high school by starting micro schools inside their high school. 
Um, so I, I think this bias towards action of, of not assuming that you have to blow up a, a 2,500 student high school, but that you can start with a, a very small experiment and let it uh, become what it wants to become uh, is a is super uh, important advice. I also think, you know, so my first book was called The Allure of Order, and it was about how policymakers try to, you know, put legible categories onto everything, but learning is complicated and requires a lot of skill on the part of teachers. And thus it's not easy to sort of like rationalize from afar. Um, And so I think the point that you just made is really important, right? Which is that like not every form will solve every uh, problem. So like, you know, maybe within a 2,500 person high school, you know, maybe there should be six or seven, you know, communities of different sorts that are um, that are doing different things, and maybe that meets the variety of student and adult needs. I could uh, do this for another hour, but I want to I want to uh, try to um, close with some advice on visiting schools. I think you and I have both visited a lot of schools, and we believe it's been you know the most powerful part of our professional learning. Maybe you could give people some tips for how to visit schools, how to pick them, and and then how to learn as much as you can when you visit them. Sure. Um, well, let's start with the second part. Um, uh, you know, when we went to a school, uh, so I did this with my collaborator, Sarah Fine, who um, couldn't join us today, but uh, was a full kind of co-author and co-participant in this book. And when we, uh, when we went to a school, you know, our general procedure was to um, just ask whoever had sponsored the visit if they could give us, you know, two kids. One, this was mostly high school. So one kid who was, and most of these schools continue to be tracked. That's just continues to be the reality. So we asked, like, can you give us, like, one kid who's sort of, like, in the sort of upper tracks and one kid who's in sort of the, the lower tracks? And will that kid sort of be our host for the day? And that's just a really good way to see a school because, you get to see, you know, five or six or seven things over the course of a day. You don't have the adults who are sponsoring you, you know, monitoring every visit, minute of your visit and, you know, directing you to this class as opposed to that class. So you get sort of like a real uh, cross-section of what's going on. And by getting a student as your host, you know, that person has to talk to you all day. And so, you know, you, you run out of chit-chat after, like, maybe other people are better at chit-chat than I am, but, you know, you run out of, like, the weather-type chit-chat after, you know, a few minutes. And then after that, like, you can just fill that time with asking them all sorts of questions about the school, and then that kid will go to lunch, and then you can sit with them while they have lunch, and then you'll start talking to their friends, and gradually you'll get some sense of what's happening uh, at the school. And if so two of you do that across two different tracks – you know, just after like a day or two, you have some big sense, you have a pretty good sort of cross-sectional sense of what um, is happening at a school. So that's sort of one piece of advice. And I think, you know, if you read Sizer's books, for example, it's pretty clear that he uh, also often had students as his hosts and that that worked, um, that worked well. Um, and then within that, I think like um, another thing that we did was you know, once we've done that sort of cross-sectional part, we use that to identify what are the most interesting kind of spaces within a school. So at many schools, if you do the cross-sectional work, what you're going to see 
is a little dispiriting. But if you sort of zero in on particular programs, activities, extracurriculars, etc., it'll be a lot more exciting. And it'll also just be more interesting. You'll learn more because the people in those spaces have sort of figured out how to do something interesting and different. So then uh, we spent a lot of time, like the majority of the data in our book reflect that history that you described at the beginning. And so as a result, most of that, most of that time was not that exciting uh, or high level for students. That, that was like the majority of what we saw. But we kind of adjusted our strategy after about a year. And uh, rather than writing a sort of like another indictment of the American high school, we decided to sort of follow the spaces that were most interesting. So if you read our book, you'll see that like we put all the negative data into the first chapter. And then each of the next seven chapters sort of focus on different parts of the high points we saw in different places. So I would encourage people as they visit to get some sense of the whole, but then also to concentrate on the things that are most interesting to them and then like spend some real sustained overtime time with those in those spaces. And then, um, you know, you can learn new things and get energized. Uh, I guess last question is, did you leave this, this sort of anthropological project of yours optimistic about the direction of the American high school? It's really interesting that you ask that because, um, you know, as we as we share the book and we go out and we talk to people who've uh, who've read the book, the people people split on reading the book seems to be really 50 50. You know, some people read the book and they're like, wow, like after all this time, you know, you must be ready to, um, you know, jump out a window after seeing all of these classes that weren't that, you know, engaging and dispiriting. And then other people are like, wow, your, your book's really optimistic because, you know, you saw all of these, you know, great exceptions, teachers, classrooms, extracurriculars, uh, electives. And, uh, you know, um, when we were talking to a newspaper editor, when we were doing an op-ed, he said, you know, I think your book is really optimistic. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, we're, we're not going to become Finland. Like, we're not going to magically, you know, increase the professionalization of our teachers or pay our teachers a lot more or any of those things. But what your book shows is that like the same teachers, if given a little bit more space and flexibility and sort of different boxes to work within can do really great stuff. So the guy who's, you know, rushing through, you know, 10 empires between Mesopotamia and the French revolution at 10 in the morning might be teaching an elective on the cold war at two in the afternoon. And that elective might be really interesting. Even if the class in the morning he was teaching was, uh, really sort of surface level. Um, so I think there are kind of optimistic and uh, pessimistic ways to read uh, what we did. And I really think that actually is the combination that we need. Uh, my colleague at the Kennedy School, Marshall Gans, who uh, is a longtime community organizer, says that uh, change is about uh, urgency plus hope. Uh, and he kind of, he looks at us education folks and he says, you guys are long on urgency and short on hope. Uh, and so we tried, you know, pretty consciously to, to, to balance those things that like, we need the urgency, we need to sort of remake, as you say, an institution that was created more than a century ago by a committee of 10, mostly uh, white men uh, that have organized the experiences of students ever since. Um, so we need that urgency, but on the other hand, like we know it's possible. It's already happening. It's happening everywhere. It's not only happening in the most sort of innovative lighthouse charter magnet schools. There's some of this stuff happening in pretty much every school. And so the question is like, how might we, 
uh, expand that, and I and I think that we could. Yeah, I left your book really optimistic, and I guess the, the combined with the a lot of the schools that we have both visited, um, I'm very optimistic about what is happening in American high schools, um, and. It's it like you. It's a little. My view is a little bit skewed by visiting a lot of schools where it's reported that cool things are happening for kids. Um, but uh, we are really excited about the amount of deeper learning that we see across America, and the fact that it's more important than ever uh, that kids be engaged in in real meaningful work and. So we, we would just encourage uh, everybody listening that's interested in high schools to read uh, this new book, In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. Uh, it's, it's a terrific contribution. Uh, John Meta, we just we really appreciate your work and uh, joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. And the appreciation for the work is, is very much mutual. I've learned a tremendous amount from you through the years. A big thanks to Dr. Mehta for joining us for this week's episode. We appreciate his leadership and deeper learning. For more on deeper learning, you can listen to episode 187 with Jamar Lee, a graduate from Iowa Big, or episode 163 about designing from scratch for timeless learning with Pam Moran. We've got them included in the show notes and on today's blog post. And one more thing, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We don't want you to miss out on some of the great interviews coming later this spring and summer. And we also wouldn't mind if you left us a quick rating or a review. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline. And Jessica. Signing off.